Okay, everyone, welcome to a special edition of Bobby and Jens. We have got to the end of the third and final Grand Tour of the year, La Vuelta de España. And just like we did in the Giro and the Tour de France, we're going to take this episode and do a little bit of a breakdown. And starting off, I mean, unless, unless you've been living under a rock, you know that Remco Evenepoel won the race. You know that Primoz Rolex crashed in the race, and we're going to break that down a little bit later. I know Jens has some pretty strong opinions on that. And of course, just this new generation of young riders that impressed all of us. But on top of that, we had the Sarah Tidzit challenge by La Vuelta. So let's dive into a little bit of that first. You know, the women also did three big races this year, the Giro, the Tour de France, and now the Ceratizit Challenge by La Vuelta. But we had the same winner again, Annemiek Van Vluten, just on stage two took over the race. Um, stage one was a team time trial. I love when Grand Tours start with team time trials, and I'm sure the women loved it as well. Uh, Yenzi, Trek Segrafredo wins stage one team time trial, and... I know I like this this event. I'm sh- pretty sure that you two, you do as well. But I wonder how the women feel about starting a, a race like this with a team time trial. Well, I guess some of them enjoyed it. Um, it was fairly close at the top end of it. Some teams lost massive amount of times, but it was pretty spectacular and uh, it looked great. I loved watching it. Like you say, Bobby, I do like team time trials. And to start the Grand Tour with a team time trial, it's pretty spectacular. Probably also nerve-wracking for everyone involved. Doesn't matter if you're a man or woman. It's got to be nerve-wracking, your first event. But they did really well. It was great to see, and they fought hard for it. And uh, Elisa Longo-Borghini was the first across the finish line, so she had the, the leader's jersey going into stage two. But that didn't last very long. Because classic Annemiek Van Vluten, uh, winning by a long solo, had a two-minute 16 gap there at the end. And hate to say it, but she kind of clinched the overall on, on day two. So her team being from Spain, she races for the Movistar team. Uh, I guess that was the tactic from day one. What do you think? Yes, um, she did some impressive solos all over the year. Also in the Tour de France, there were some long attacks by herself. So when you are that strong, it is the safest, um, the safest tactics you can have. Just put the hammer down, drop him, and finish by yourself. Gain a massive amount of time, and you know, winning by two minutes sixteen over the rest of the world-class elite. You are a pretty dominant rider. So I guess she did. She did it all right, and I'm pretty sure it was part of the tactics for her from the beginning. Yep. Stage three was another kind of shorter stage of only 96 kilometers, won by Grace Brown of FDJ Suez Futuroscope. Uh, Grace and her breakaway companion, Elise Chabet, held off a strong group of sprinters with Elisa Balsamo and Loda Kopecky coming in eight seconds later. But didn't really change the GC. Obviously, when you have that big of a uh, gap, that doesn't change. But stage four wasn't so, 
I guess, topically challenging. But again, it was the long stage, 160 kilometers. And that was won in a sprint by Silvia Persesco from the Valcar Travel Service, um, beating Demi Volarin and Lisa Borghini in the sprint. Uh, 160K, uh, you've been just doing short little stages and then you get 160K stage thrown in there. I wonder, I wonder how that went. So stage four was a stage one, just like you said, by Silvia Persico. But the main attraction of that day was a single breakaway by the Olympic champion in exactly the same style. She won the Olympics. Attacked at kilometer zero, she went out all by herself up to nine minutes at once. She crashed, went back on her bike and got caught almost inside of the finish line. So dramatic day for her because she almost pulled it off again. Apart from that, it seemed to be a long and normal stage just from the spectacular solo breakaway of Olympic champion Anna Kiesenhofer. So after that exciting finish, we had the final stage, the Madrid to Madrid. It was the, the circuits and a Bobby and Jens alumni coming through with the win. World champion Elisa Balsamo from Trek Segrafedo one ahead of Loda Kopecky and Marta Bastinelli. A uh, special shout out to Megan Jestrab from the USA who finished fourth. But um, I mean, five days, you got a team time trial, you got some flat stages, you got some rolling stages, you got circuits there at the end. Um, I'm not sure if it was at the level of the women's Tour de France Femme this year, but. I think it's a little bit better than what the Vuelta has done in the past. And let's just hope that this uh, continues on into the future. But all saying that, it would have been really hard to get to the same level as the Tour de France Farms this year. Yeah, because for the woman, there is also not too much time, or there was not too much time between the Giro Italia woman and the women's Tour de France. So there was uh, some intense two months of racing with all these grand tours. Um, from what we have heard on Eurosport, eventually the Vuelta wants to move up to 10 days for the women's race. They're going to start now. Pretty good start with five days and they're going to try to move it up a day per year. That's what the latest information we had is that they want to move it up one stage per year. So they let it grow organic, slowly, in a safe way. They let it grow and they want to end up with 10 days for the challenge by La Vuelta for the woman. Yep, so Anamik wins her third kind of grand tour of the year in a row, uh, finishing in front of Elisa Longo Bergini and Demi Volering. We had a uh, Sylvia Persico won the points jersey. Lucinda Brand won the mountains jersey. And the team classification was won by Team SD Works. So another hard race in the bag. And like you said, Jens, these women must be tired. Yep. I'm sure that um, some of them already in the offseason, some probably still racing in the upcoming worlds, but then they are all going to be ready for their off-season. Um, yeah, just to, to, to wrap it up, um, the women's Vuelta, 
Tracks like Alfredo winning the first and the last stage. Annemiek van Floyten in impressive style takes a stage and the overall. So I guess um, Annemiek van Floyten is having the time of her life. In her last season ever as a pro. How about that? That's a pretty impressive way to drop, drop the mic. Um, but who knows? We'll maybe talk about the world championships later. I'm not sure if she's doing that, but that would be another nice little feather in the cap. But let's get to the men's race now. Uh, I think we should break it up into, you know, kind of the first three stages, you know, have it broken up by the rest days because there was a lot going on very early in the race. We had a foreign start again. They started in Ultricht, uh, Netherlands. And let's just say... Starting off with the team time trial from that first few pedal strokes, you could see that Jumbo Visma was was on a burner. Um, stage one, team time trial, they won pretty easily. Robert Gessink, a longtime worker, Gregario, domestique of the team, uh, was able to, to cross the finish line first. And that kind of gave us a little bit of an impression that Jumbo Visma left off or started where they left off after an amazing and dominant Tour de France this year. They did really well, I have to say. And they even had the time to decide who they wanted to cross the line first. I mean, they must have been pretty confident in the first place to actually talk about that before the race. And then they all had the nerves and the condition left, you know, riding at 65 kilometers an hour towards the finish line, to make sure that Robert Gazing, as a thank you gesture, gets the first leader's journey of the Vuelta España in his home country. I loved it. It was like almost like a little fairy tale. You don't see it often that a plan like that works. They all put it into reality. And Robert Gazing is just the nicest guy on earth. He so deserves that. He was all his entire career with that team. Rabobank before... Um, all these different names the team had in between. Always the same structure. Robert Gesing spent his entire career there. And to say thank you, they said, you deserve that leader's jersey for today. Great. Well done. Very well done. And talking about well done, stage two and stage three was won by Sam Bennett from Bora Hansgrohe. Uh, the Kind of the cool thing, before I talk a little bit more about Sam, was that Gay Sink had the jersey after the team time trial. Then Mike Tunison took it over on stage after stage two. And then Eduardo Affini got it after stage three. So it's kind of pretty cool being able to pass the, the leader's jersey around the team. But Jens, tell me a little bit about Sam Bennett. I mean, he definitely hasn't had the smoothest roads as of late. But to win two stages in the first three in, in the Tour of Spain this year was was a nice little comeback for him, wasn't it? Definitely. He, so far for this season, had only one win. That race, formerly known as Henninger Turm in Frankfurt, now it's called Eschborn Frankfurt. First of May, it always is. So that was his only win for the season. So, yes, he put himself back into the first line of sprinters with a back-to-back -back stage win on stage two and stage three. And he did beat some pretty good names in the business. So it wasn't a lucky win. He was definitely the best and strongest. Um, and I believe a good part of that is thanks to Danny van Poppel, who seems to become 
the next super lead out man and um probably in a moment he or at least at this welter Danny van Poppel was the most important guy in the train for Sam Bennett. Well, already on the fourth day, they have a transfer day, so they have to get from Holland down not only to Spain, but to one of the trickiest areas of Spain, uh, the Basque Country. And right away, we see that Jumbo Visma is hogging it again with a great stage win by Primoz Roglic. Uh, he actually got to take the jersey as well. So what was that? Four guys from the same team being able to touch the jersey. But Yenzi, he, Primos crashed in the Tour de France and there were rumors that he wasn't, hadn't even started training until two weeks before the Vuelta. When you saw him sprint away on this uphill finish, meeting, beating nobody, you know, no one less than Mads Pedersen here. What were you thinking? Were you thinking that this was going to be a runaway Vuelta for Primos? Well, first of all, when I saw that sprint, the power he had to put out to be there and to beat Pedersen just on raw power, it is basically impossible that he only started training two weeks before the Vuelta España. He must have trained much more and much better to be ready like that. I was going to say after four days in the yellow jersey during stage five, it looked like tactics started to play into the, the whole tour of Spain with Jumbo Visma saying, hey, you know, we've had the jersey for a while. It's a long way to go. So they kind of just let the breakaway go and they wound up winning by five minutes. A great win by Mark Soler from UAE Emirates. Uh Again, a guy that hasn't had the easiest of runs of things. And there you go on, on stage five, already winning a stage after struggling so many years there at, at Movistar, not being able to come through with the goods. Yeah, he's another one of them that seemed to be happier and better after leaving Movistar. Miguel Angel Lopez, he also wrote like a different person after he left the movie star. So it must be something within the team that uh, does does not make everyone happy in the team, apparently. Um, and um, Marc Soler must have been the strongest diesel engine in the entire Vuelta because I don't think there was a day without him in the break, at least not in the last week or in the last 10 days. He was in every break everywhere, left, right, in the middle. And when he was caught, he would be right in tempo for Ayuso or Almeida. He was strong like no one else in this Vuelta. So yes, he absolutely deserved that win. Well, stage six, finally get to the big mountains with the first uphill finish. The stage was won by Jay Vine. Um, pretty impressive. I mean, for him to be in the breakaway and to hold off Remco, who rode everyone off his wheel but Eric Moss in terrible weather. Uh, great, great victory. I didn't see that coming. We all know that he won the Zwift Academy a couple years ago, and here he is winning uh, a great first uphill mountain stage six of the Tour of Spain. I almost wanted to see. I didn't see it either because there was so much fog and rain on the finish line that you could hardly see anyone in the picture because the weather was just so terrible when he crossed the line. Um, and I'm so happy that he did prove me wrong. I always thought, well, riding on a home trainer is not the same than riding on the road. But he did super well. He did prove my own little thoughts wrong. He is as good on the road in real-world conditions than he is on Swift or on a home trainer. So well done, my friend. And 
needless to say, because we have seen the results, he repeats the victory just two days after. So yes, welcome in the club of world-class athletes, my friend. Yeah, you beat me to it there. But uh, sandwiched between those two great uphill finishes by Jay Vine, we had Jesus Harada, the Kofidis team. Big win for Kofidis, uh, period. I don't think they win too many stages of Grand Tours very often. But one of the most touching uh, videos of the Vuelta for me was his reaction after winning. Um, you know, he, he's been in the sport a while. Kofidis doesn't win much. And you just saw a kid and his soigneur just really embracing that moment. So um, very, very impressive win there by he Jesus Hirata, who definitely was involved, like Soler, in a lot of more breakaways moving forward. Um, so Remco takes over the jersey, um, you know, after Jay's first win. And starting to think like, okay, he came in hot. He won San Sebastian, you know, young guy. Okay, good for experience. I didn't really expect him to go on and, and win. But like, let's, before we get too far ahead, we got to talk about stage number nine, which was another nice little uphill day, uh, to say the least. Luis Menchies from Intermarché Wante Gobert win one. Great final climb. He didn't lose hardly any time to Remco, who put more time into his GC rivals. But, you know, just this soon into the Tour de France, just before the, the second rest day, we already have some some great and quite a few different winners. Yep. And um, looking at their names, they're all worthy winners, no lucky ones or nice people. I, I just love when you win, like Jesus Herrada. What a hardworking man he is. And like you said... He doesn't win too often, so that was well done. Jay Wine, surprise kid, new kid on the block. Uh, Luis Meintjes from South Africa, hard as a rock. And uh, he was in a break, I believe, two days before or three days. And he did chase too hard. This time he did it a lot smarter. He let the first break go, hit the first attacks go. They would burn themselves off. He slowly did reel him back in. And then he played his strengths in the in the final, basically. So, yes, well done by him. It was good to see him uh, winning. And Intermarché, Vanti, Goubert, they are punching all season long, way above their weight, I have to say. For a relatively small team, they do super well. Agreed, agreed. And the Peloton had their second rest day, and then it was... Game on for, for Remco. Uh, he must have been licking his lips because stage 10 was a 31-kilometer time trial. Not only did he win, but he won it in dominant fashion over Primoz Roglic, the Olympic champion in this event, by over 48 seconds. Wow. Um, this is where I started to believe that this was Remco's year. Yeah, he did basically annihilate any everyone else in that time trial. And like just like you mentioned, Bobby, Primoz Roglic is the reigning Olympic champion in that. So to beat him by that much time, that clearly shows that Remco was ready to take the next step and really go for the overall victory, not just learning or trying to get more experience. It looked like, yep, he is ready to take the next step. 
Unfortunately, during that rest day, something must have happened because when uh, they did the COVID tests, there was, I think, eight COVID um, positives or did not starts that day. One of them was Sam Bennett, you know, in the green jersey. That must be kind of a bummer way to leave. But, um, you know, respect to, to Remco for planning his work and working his plan in that time trial because that was was pretty impressive. Um, stage 11, a kind of a surprising winner, uh, Caden Groves from Team Bike Exchange, Jayco. When I say kind of surprising, um, 23 years old, he's been having a good year, uh, but this, he finally got it right. And um, since it was, I believe, uh, about a three mile long finishing straight, straight ahead, um, he just had his team better organized. His team were the only one they were almost together so they could control the pace, the speed, and they had some sort of functioning lead-out train. Everybody else was all over the place, and I believe that cost Mats Patterson and the other sprinters the win. So Caden Groves, he was fast, he was strong, but he also had the best team in the right moment at that race. So yes, well-deserved win, and how happy the kid was after the finish line. Stage 12, time to go back uphill. Richard Karpas wins the stage from a breakaway. But remember, this was the stage where Remco crashed, and you saw the big wound on the side of his leg. But that being an uphill finish, I was a little bit nervous, but he seemed to absolutely control that, that front group. Uh, looked very, very strong on that final climb, didn't he? Yes, he did. And um, Karpas, I must say, He's leaving the team, Ineos Grenadiers, after so many years. And leaving the team is always like a divorce. Sometimes like a little divorce, everybody is happy. It's for the best of everyone. Sometimes it's an ugly and big divorce. So in the past, we have seen riders, they were not even taken to the welter anymore because they leave the teams. Or riders, they were just riding into easy, into the end of the contract. Carapaz... He was fully operational until the last moment of the bike, giving the team a fantastic stage win. He didn't have to because he's already gone. He got a contract signed for next year. So I love the character. He shows for the team to still fight and work for the team until the last day of his contract. And also the team trusting him going, hey, look, we take you to the Vuelta and he delivers. So I love that little side of it. I love that piece. If you want to get more out of your free time, sign up to Outside Plus. For less than a dollar a week, you can get six print and digital issues of Peloton Magazine, exclusive membership content from Velenews.com, access all the premium content from the whole Outside family, including Yoga Journal, Backpacker, Ski, Outside Magazine, and many others. And that's not all. There are discounts of the hottest gear and biggest events access to Gaia, GPS, and trail forks, as well as virtual health and fitness courses. It's $350 of value in one $99 annual subscription. But if you head to valuenews.com forward slash outside plus and enter BJPOD25, all one word, lowercase, at checkout, you will receive our special 25% discount and make a good deal. Great. And now back to our Vuelta chat. Well, 
talk about delivering, and I know you're going to like this one. Stage 13 was Mads Peterson's first win. Uh, Mads obviously rides for Trek Segrafredo. Very nice sprint win in the green jersey. Okay, Sam Bennett wasn't there anymore, but I think this is where he started to stamp his authority on those bunch finishes with a, a great finish over uh, Brian Cocard and Pascal Ackerman. Indeed, he did. And we had some footage of it, uh, of his team meeting in the bus. And imagine you in the bus, you go, guys, trust me, if we work together, I can win this. Here's the plan. We follow the, we, we follow the groups, you control the break. We don't let him get away too far. We not letting get away too many riders in that break. You pull, I be there. And if I'm on the last corner, on the wheel of Alex Kirsch, I'm going to win. And he did. I mean, that's confidence, you know, to say, hey, boys, listen, I'll be standing here in front of you. Trust me. If you work for me, we follow the plan. I'm able and I'm going to win. So it was fantastic to see. And after a few second and third places, he was always so close. He deserved that one as well. And kind of like it opened like his path to even more. I agree. And talk about opening a path to even more. Uh, stage 14, we had Richard Carapaz again from Ineos Grenadiers. Awesome stage, no doubt about it. But this was the stage, remember Remco had crashed a few days earlier. This was the stage where Remco bled a little bit of time to, to Moss and Rolick. Um, this was, this was, uh, could have been it. You know, 48 seconds, that's a lot of time to lose. But he showed a lot of maturity by limiting that loss. But I must say, Yenzi, after such a dominant performance up until then, I almost had to check my TV screen. I almost didn't believe that he was finally getting popped. Same for me, because from, from my experience, a rider's capacity or potential develops in a line. We don't have miracle comebacks, breakdowns, and comebacks. So it is easier straight a straight line and the rider doesn't get more tired it is either slightly uphill the rider gets better and better or slightly downhill and i thought oh i think he is young only 22 years old this is the first day where he struggles and it's going to be little by little they're going to be catching him back that's what i thought in all honesty i thought mm, i cannot see him reversing that trend um, and coming, he lost, what, about close to 50 seconds? That was qu quite a big amount of time. And I thought, ooh, plus he's a young man. I thought this is kind of like going to be cracking him in his head. And um, if I'm allowed to move fast forward to the next day, he lost a little more time, but slightly less. Only, what, 14 seconds or 20 so after these two days, I'm like, ooh, I don't know. I think he's in trouble. And the other ones, they can smell the blood already. The guy's chasing him, right? Oh, there was blood in the water, no doubt. But he did, like you said, lost 48 seconds and then a little bit less. But that's not to overshadow a great stage by Taiman Arisman. This was the guy that we had asked Carson Kroon about that we were super excited to see how he would do. And, and he came through. Great young win, 22-year-old Dutch rider. But I think the story of the day was the fact that now Remco's lead was basically cut in half in two days. And I have to say, 
that he got super lucky with the next day being a rest day or else this downward trend could have just kept continuing and we'd be in a totally different situation. But there was that rest day. Uh, then we had stage 16, which was a sprint day. Mads Pedersen, Trek Segafredo wins again. But right there, that was a great uphill finish by Mads in front of Ackerman and Danny Van Poppel. But this is where the race totally got flipped on its head. Primos was in the process of putting more time into Remco. Remco somehow at the bottom, once he got past the 3K to go line, changed his bike. We remember there was a lot of controversy about that, but it looked like Primos was just going to take another, I don't know, 8, 20, 30 seconds out of him and pulls basically the whole last straight once he made the selection. There was only a few very good sprinters that were able to hold his wheel. And then all of a sudden, he swings over to the left, and I think, okay, he's just going to drive it all the way to the line to get maximum time difference between himself and Remco. But then, no, he goes to the right. And then, Jens, talk me through what happened about 200 meters from the finish line of this stage with Primos and Fred Wright. Primos did a tactical little masterpiece, surprising everyone, attacking, and only a few sprinters, they were just getting ready to be in a good position. They were able to hang on to him just as, you know, they were hanging on for dear life. So they come to the finishing straight. The road is 100 feet wide. It's five riders out there. And it's straight as an arrow to the finish line. And so Primoz pulls off in the front and tries to go back. It looked to me like as if he wanted to go back in a slipstream, recover for a second, and then try to sprint to get bonus seconds for the top three places of the stage. And so he swings back into the group, the same moment where Fred Wright tries to move out of the group, of, of that line, to get a free a free run for his sprint. So Primoz Roglic bounced into him, and it, there's no perfect uh, video footage of it. But from different angles looking at it, it looks like Primoz hardly touch Fred Wright and bounces off and, and, and crashes. So it's it's really hard to explain and to understand how can you crash. Bright daylight, the road is as wide as anything. How can you crash? There's space for everyone. Primoz should have just realized I gained time. I did the damage. These are sprinters. I'm going to sit on a wheel and try to hang on and not lose time to the sprinters because once they open the sprint and push 2,000 watts, I don't think that uh, many people can hang, hang on to them. So you should have just saved his energy and sit on their wheel. Or was he really thinking he could out-sprint any of them? Um, so, yes? Y you never know. Um, I think that we just need to put this whole thing to rest because you got to think about, we're sitting there watching it on TV from our couches, right? Heart rate, 60. These guys' heart rate is pinned off the charts. They're seen sideways, lactate up to the eyeballs. And that was just a very unfortunate incident that unfortunately gave Fred Wright uh, a very hard story to explain. And, and I, I want to defend him. But it also kind of encapsulates Primos' luck as of late. 
Um, I don't think there's anybody to blame here. It was a very unfortunate accident, which changed the final outcome of the Vuelta. Um, Primos was obviously getting stronger. This would have been one more body blow to, to Remco. And, uh, but now, next day, uh, unfortunately, he's out of the race. And I think that the whole peloton just kind of needed another stage to, to regroup. So one of the oldest and coolest cats in the peloton, Rigoberto Oran from EF Education Easy Post, wins stage 17 in a very exciting uphill finish um, ahead of, I think it was Pasher and, and Harada. But I think the Peloton right then just needed to, you know, kind of take a break. I think they would have been a little bit more aggressive if they knew, is Remco good? Primos is out. Um, a lot of things kind of swayed on that stage, in my opinion. Well, the only real, realistically serious contender or challenger for Remco was out. Enric Maas, I love him like my brother, but he was not the aggressive, strong chaser of Remco Evenepoel. So it looked like um, with Primoz Roglic gone, the race, the overall was kind of like sealed between one and two. The only remaining battle were about place three because there were three riders, all young kids, within a minute, roughly within a minute of third position so that was the only remaining interesting um interesting uh, race left KOM was almost decided with Carapaz the green jersey was done with a huge margin um for Mats Pedersen so third position was the really interesting part of the race and yes you're right they kind of like everybody was trying to rearrange himself and his team with the fact that Roglic is gone and Jumbo Visma now has to ride differently. Well, I tell you one thing, with Roglic out of the race, stage 18, you have no one, no else, no one else but Remco Evenepoel that comes, stamps his authority on the race. Uh, this was a huge moment in when you think about the career development of a young rider. Um, talk about flipping the script. You know, he goes from losing time, rest day, that doesn't really help. He starts to lose a little bit more time or the possibility. But he came through like an absolute boss. I mean, mentally, this kid won't crack. He's He probably said, okay, you know, I'm a few more days away from that bad crash that I had that obviously affected me. But now I'm going to show who's boss. And he did. I mean, because after this stage... Really, the only competitor was Mas. Um, but, you know, this stage, we had Jay Vine crash out. We had Carlos Rodriguez crash hard. Like, guys were doing damage to themselves. And then Remco just seemed to feed on that and came through with a great uphill stage win after winning the time trial on, on stage 10. And what a great uh, stage it was for Robert Geising, apart the last 200 feet. He was leading and it looked so good. Like the advantage looked like, yes, he's going to make it. Yes, 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 yes. And then Mars goes closer, closer, closer. And for a split second, it looked like Mars would have stayed on the wheel of Geising. He looked hesitant as if, hey, the guy worked so hard, let him win this one. 
But then Remco took off and Mars followed and they all sprinted full gas to the finish line. It would have been a fantastic fairy tale win for Robert Gazing. And he took it like a champ. In an interview afterwards, he said, yep, my day was pretty good, apart from the last 200 meters. So it was exciting all the way to the finish line. And yes, Remco Evenepoel made sure, hey, I'm the king. Don't even consider trying to attack me. Yeah, but I mean, Mads comes through with another stage win, his third stage win in stage 19. Uh, he just became a man against boys with the in, in the Vuelta during the, the sprints, especially with the green jersey on his back. But uh, one of the main things that I saw in this stage was poor Carlos Rodriguez, who had crashed pretty hard the day before, was just on the hurt bus all day long. And for such a young rider to battle through that, that kind of was like my 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 ride of the day. Yep. Well, I really think there was a lot of good rides of the day. I really have to admit, um, this Vuelta was pretty exciting and uh, it was pretty good. Like in the last week, a lot of riders, they were relatively close in the GC, went into the break and moved back into the top 10 or whatever, top 6, top 7 like Thümen Ahrensmann or Rigoberto Uran. They, they, they were relatively close. Um, Luis Meintjes was a few times in the break. He always tried to make it into the top 10. He was, uh, he, I believe he ended up 11th. So that was something I haven't seen in many big uh, stage races, that um, riders, they are relatively close to the top 10, are in the break, and it actually works for them. Well... Final mountain stage, summit finish of the Vuelta, stage 20, won again by the guy who is giving the best going away present to his team, Olympic champion Richard Carapaz from Ineos Grenadiers. Again, aggressive ride, especially there at the end to get that third stage win and clinch the KOM jersey, which I think he had pretty firm control over before he attacked. But... Uh, you know, the rest of the, the best of the rest there just kind of marked each other. There wasn't any really major differences made on that last mountain day. But man, after almost three weeks, these guys must have been exhausted. But Richard Carapaz, I tip my hat to you. Going out like a boss, changing teams next year, but giving Ineos Grenadiers something to cheer about for you to leave. And what a classy way to, to go out, change teams. Absolutely it is. Um, he really gave it all. He showed all his passion for cycling and just rode because he loved it, obviously, to perform, to be out there, to be an aggressive rider. And Rigoberto Uran, going to be his teammate next year at um, EF Education Easy Post. He said, yep, us two together. We want to try to win the Tour de France. So that sounds good to me. I can't wait for that plan to unfold. Well, as... Everything, the Vuelta had to come to an end in one of my least favorite circuits of a bike race in the world, the uh, the Madrid circuit, which was obviously going to be a, a sprint finish. Short stage, but wow, always a tricky circuit. But I have to say, you know, Juan Sebastian Milano, uh, great sprint, but he was supposed to be the lead out for Pascal Ackerman. And it looked like a drag race coming to the finish, but I've never seen two guys from the same team basically sprinting them, sprinting themselves instead of a lead out, one guy pulling off and then going from there. But I mean, great sprint. Mads 
could not come around him for his fourth stage win, but did end the race in in the green jersey. But how how did you look at that final sprint, Yenzi? You were you were commenting during that time. Did you did you just what what was your opinion of that that final? It looked a little bit uh, strange to me. Um, looking at it, comment commentating on it, and thinking about it, I believe um, Juan Sebastian Mulano. He looked at it and said, okay, just out of pure self-defense to keep that win within the team, I have to ride to the finish line because he could see Mats Pedersen is on his left, half wheel there. His supposed to be sprinter Pascal Agaman is behind him, an entire bike length behind him. So Molano go, look, if I pull to the left, I'm going to run into Mats Pedersen, leaving my line, going to get disqualified. If I pull to the right, I finish 5, 6, 7, 8. But Pascal Ackermann never, ever going to sprint past Mats Pedersen. So we figured the only way to, to secure the win for our team, I ride as long as I can and hope for the best. Because neither Mats or Pascal were fast enough to pass the leadout man. So... Weird circumstances, but I believe Molano did the best out of it, made sure the win stays within the team because he saw his own sprinter, Pascal, is just not fast enough to take the win on that day. Well, through these 21 crazy stages, we had 12 different teams winning stages. Um, Ineos Grenadiers and Trek Segrafredo each got three. Uh, Jumbo Visma... Bora Hansgrohe, UAE Emirates, Alpecin, Dekoinik, and Quickstep Alpha Vinyl all got two. And then Kofidis, Intermarche, Wanty Gobert, Bike Exchange, Jayco, Team DSM, and last but not least, Team EF Education, Easy Post got in on the fun. But the big spoils was reserved or is reserved for Remco Evenepoel. He finished about two minutes ahead of Enrique Moss from the Movistar team with Young Gun. I mean, there's multiple that we can talk about here in a second when we get to the Young Rider classification. Juan Ayuso, 19 years old, first Grand Tour, third place in the Tour of Spain. Um, basically, when I look at it, the Young Riders classament uh, is almost the same as the GC because you had Remco win that as well with Ayuso in second and our boy Joao Almeida finishing third. I think the real takeaway for me was Remco, the first Grand Tour winner from Belgium in over 40 years. Huge story. Didn't get it handed to him on a, on a silver platter. Had to work for it. I think a lot of people gained respect for, for the way that he rode. But then just the way that the young guys dominated this Vuelta. I mean, it's so exciting. We had uh, Remco, Juan Ayuso, Almeida, Taman Arizman, and Carlos Rodriguez all in the top 10. Um, Eric Moss, what? He's 27. Okay, Rigoberto or Ron's a little bit older. I think he's 35. And, and Ben O'Connor, um, I think, is uh, 20, uh, 26. And Jai Hindley's 26. But other than that, you had a very, very young um, top 10 in, in the last Grand Tour of the year. Enric Mars was 27. is the grandpa on the podium. The winner is 22. And now, <coughs> and now my favorite... Juan Ayuso is 19 years old. 
He is, check that, the youngest podium in the Grand Tour since 1904. A young 20-year-old Henri Cornet won the Tour de France. Since 1904, he is the youngest rider ever to finish on any Grand Tour podium. That is history, my friend, right? We're talking like 116 years ago. Uh, or 118 years ago, somebody else at, at his age finishes at a Grand Tour. And this year, Jay Hindley, 26 years old, the oldest Grand Tour winner, Tour de France, Wingergaard, Pogacar, first and second, they are young kids. We see an absolute change of generations, right? So Valverde is retiring, Nibali is retiring. Nibali won all three Grand Tours, but he retires. So yes, we absolutely, I witness a change of generations. Well, it is the Tour of Spain. And with the other jersey winners, we had Mads Peterson from Trek Segafredo win the green jersey. That was a pretty massive point differential between first and second. Uh, Richard Carapaz wins the KOM jersey. And like I stated before, Oh, Remco doubles up, gets the yellow and the white young riders jersey. But I'm glad that you mentioned Valverde because Valverde is one of my my favorite riders, has been for a very long time, probably since 2003. It was an actual absolute honor to be with him on the podium in uh, when I won Perry Nice. He was second. Um, I think he won the young riders classification. So that tells you how long ago it was. But I, I am so impressed with this guy's um, career. Yes, he had some interesting times, but he again and again proved that he is the consummate professional. And let me tell you, Team Movistar is going to be missing him next year. Um, I love Enrique Moss. Yeah, Enrique Moss got second in another Grand Tour, but didn't win a stage. Not so exciting. Valverde was exciting. So... Um, Alejandro Valverde, enjoy your retirement. He'll probably be like racing Grand Fondos and, and crushing everyone or, you know, doing a triathlon. We'll probably see him again. But uh, yeah, great, great race. Always kind of a bummer after the Tour of Spain. Um, racing seems to feel a little bit over for the year. But Yenzi, I got to take this opportunity to ask you about the upcoming World Championships. Um, we have the, the Vuelta finished on Sunday. And next Sunday, September 18th, guys like Remco, I would assume, are racing the team, or I'm sorry, the time trial down in Australia. How is that going to work? How are these guys going to get on a plane, these guys and gals all the way from Europe, finishing the Vuelta and get all the way down to Geelong, Australia, and race their bikes? To me, it sounds almost impossible. Yeah, it is. It, it's quite a challenge for everyone. Also, the people coming from Canada, they also uh, got to fly down there more or less straight away. So they're probably going to fly from Canada down to LA, Honolulu, Hawaii, and straight to Australia, the other way around, around the globe. Um, it's going to be challenging for everyone with the jet lag. Um, it should be okay for the road race because that's, you know, almost two weeks. I assume that Monday morning, they all leave from the Vuelta Madrid straight to Australia. 
But for the time trial, it's going to be challenging. Yes, I believe so. Well, Yenzi, thank you for your input into this episode. Uh, we hope everyone enjoyed it. We'll be back next year for the recap of the Giro d'Italia in five months. And until then, we'll go back to our regular programming with having great guests every week. Remember, our objective is talk to talk to interesting people about interesting things. So if you anyone has some ideas of people that they would like to get on the podcast, please send it to at Bobby and Jens and let us know who, would, who you would like our next guest to be. Well, that's all our time for this episode and our special edition about the Vuelta España 2022. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Valley News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne and this episode was edited by Tim Moser. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and make sure to share your cycling stories with us. Mm -hmm.